So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. We're back today talking about new releases, which it feels like it's been a bit since we talked about three new movies that are just playing out in theaters, right? I, I kind of think it's been like a year. No, it's been more than a year because COVID, right? Tenet? Yeah. Did we talk about Tenet? No, we didn't. I saw it in theaters. You didn't. Yeah, it's been a while since we were talking about new releases in theaters. Yeah, I would think if you're in a big city, you can probably... Uh, you probably had an opportunity to catch all three today, which is a decent little change of pace. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Lamb is playing in limited distribution, but um, yeah, if you're living in, you know, any of those city center areas with a big AMC that has 16 screens, you might have a chance to see it. Yeah, so taking the three movies that we're going to talk today, Lamb, No Time to Die, and The Last Duel, as a very small sampler of what's currently out in theaters has a feel to you do you feel good do you feel bad are you optimistic or just mixed feelings i definitely feel like the movies that were supposed to come out were delayed and Mm -hmm. that that has not in general i've not treated those movies that were delayed that i had a higher um expectation for with much Mm. um I, I haven't enjoyed them very much. Um, I've seen Dune. You haven't yet. Um, mm. That was not a positive watching experience for me. Mm. Um, no Time to Die. Spoiler. I did not have a positive viewing experience, really. Um, there's a lot to respect in both um, film um, making craftsmanship wise. But yeah. I definitely cared the most for The Last Duel here today. And I think Lamb is an interesting bite. But if we're framing this in, like, theatrical releases, it's definitely not as sharp as award seasons beginning normally are. Yeah. Yeah, I do wonder, now that in some cities, like Seattle, I feel, you know, somewhat safe going to the theaters now and all these movies that have been delayed for forever are finally coming out i do wonder like for how many people the anticipation will have just already crested like too long ago for some of these movies that people are just like eh, i'm over it um i actually weirdly feel that way a little bit about the french dispatch where i'm just like why do i feel like we've already talked about this movie so much and yet we haven't even seen it yet um the 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 role of anticipation in the lead up to watching these movies is very funky having uh been familiar with them for so long at this point Yes, and it doesn't do average movies any favors Mm -mm. to have enormous marketing budgets trying to build up anticipation for something that is fine or isn't actively bad because then it heightens the experience into a negative one based on the expectation that it's very hard to, you know, pretend that you don't have. Yeah, it's kind of a good time to try and tune out a lot of marketing because who needs, you know... I don't know, more marketing for something like the French Dispatch. We know it's coming. We've been aware of that. I, I will be interested to see if it earns its budget back. Mm. I, I kind of have a feeling that it won't. Um, 
and that's my feeling with Dune too. I, I have a sneaking suspicion it won't earn nearly as much as um, we're all hoping. Um, but anyways, we're talking about movies that are out that we've both seen today. Um, and before we do that, we'll talk about Ridley Scott's House of Gucci and our first impressions to the trailer. Let's take a peek. Gucci. It was a name that sounded so sweet, so seductive. Go. Meet the family. Hey everybody, this is Patrizia, and this is my family. Kick this out! They had it all. Wealth, style, power. Who wouldn't care for that? I've been the Gucci all my life. It is an empire. You can help the family. Gucci is not exciting, and everybody knows it. At least it's my name, sweetie. Our name, sweetie. All right, that was the trailer for Ridley Scott's House of Gucci. Or The House of Gucci? I missed if there was a the at the start. I believe it's just House of Gucci. I think it's just House. Correct. Okay. Uh, What do you think? This is a second film in the year 2021 from Sir Ridley Scott. I am pretty excited about it. I'm very perturbed by the title card that said Academy Award nominee. It's really weird for me to consider Mm. the fact that he's never won with his prolific filmography. Um, Something like American Gangster that just seems like perhaps one of the most American films that seems like it should have won or or something like Blade Runner or Alien, two of the most influential genre films. Just mm-hmm. it's it's very confounding. Um but yeah, I'm very excited. This is the Jared Leto that I thrive watching. Mm. Um he's transformed himself and he's playing a a character that's half caricature but very sincere, which is right where he um lives for me adam driver reteaming with him after the last duel which we'll talk about later is very exciting i think this is my first time seeing gaga act since um gosh what was the third remake called oh a star is born yeah yeah (laughs) since that third remake of a star is born so it'll, it'll be great to see her again she's was incredibly charismatic there and this is a very different role um everything looks like it works for me it, it's bringing back that really um like phosphorescent or expressive and like stylized almost motion comic looking um visual that it feels more gritty and more real to look at than reality does um it's very very cinematic and very pleasurable there's some interiors and exteriors in this trailer that that showed that heightened stylism that um has always spoke to me uh, in ridley's films especially um kingdom of heaven so i'm thrilled how about you it's funny i was gonna say this looks like a much louder kind of performance from lady gaga versus a star is born but that's not really true because she's saying in that movie so that's not an accurate word choice or not a good word choice but Bold. it is a more flamboyant one for yeah. sure i think this, there are quite a few flamboyant looking performances in this uh, to me they they do look like like caricatures but i think that's perhaps purposeful if this is a comment on these figures thinking they're larger than life um i may be less crazy about the look it does look to me kind of like a fashion ad or a perfume ad that could be very much intentional i think that's just a matter of whether or not i end up feeling like it, these images are are commenting on this world or thinking about that world versus just kind of mimicking it 
Um, uh, not sure yet, but um, yeah, I think I may be less enthused about a movie with these kinds of performances that are so um, big and flamboyant. Um, but then again, I am excited to see Lady Gaga again. Um, Adam Driver, I think, looks pretty amusing here. So, uh, we'll see. Yeah. On to... Come on, come on. To visit planet Earth, you'll have to be born as a human child. At first, you'll have to learn to use your new body to move your arms and legs. You will learn to walk and run, to use your hands, to make sounds and form words. There will be so much for you to learn and so much for you to feel. Sadness, joy, disappointment, and wonder. All right, Michael, that was Mike Mills's Come On, Come On, starring Joaquin Phoenix and Gabby Hoffman in a supporting role. What do you think? Well, the first thing that came to mind was the visual album that Mike Mills did for The National. With Alicia um, Vikander. Yeah, just because of the the look, right? This monochrome black and white cinematography very much looks like a continuation of the aesthetic he used there. Um, I don't think we talked about that film on the podcast, although it feels like we did, because I think we both enjoyed that. Yeah, I bit. think we had a, a separate text conversation yeah, about how much we liked it. Talked about that one offline. Uh, that's kind of a cool, re- uh, cool point of reference. I don't really feel like Mike Mills is... I never hear him like mentioned as a uh, auteur working today. Um, I I really liked Twentieth um, Century Women. Um, I'm less familiar with I think some of his other films like Beginners. I, I think is a Mike Mills film. Um, oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Yes, I like this director a lot. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, I kind of think I don't really have a. Uh, I've never really put enough thought into like what his body of work is. Um, but I think this looks great. And uh, <laughs> that's what, where I should ultimately get to is I think this looks cool. Um, and I will maybe try to just reflect on the Mike Mills movies I have seen going up into this and try to um, think about his body of work as a whole, um, which I've just never done. What about you? Yeah, he's always been an amorphous Spike Jones character to me. And that I know I like him a lot, and I feel like I don't have a clear read on why he's such a great artist. But I kind of like that I don't, because Mm. it lets me just appreciate the art without getting a little bit too into the reasons why he's making certain choices, and just enjoy the experience. Um, This is a little bit more conventional uh, family drama than I was expecting from him. Um, It kind of, you know, reminds me of... Roma or Marriage Story, you know, these more Mm -hmm. recent contemporary awards fair where the camera's really kind of bringing to life the environment with the people that it's in rather than just the people bringing the environment to life. It's it's really about the environment as well as the people from what I just saw. And I I hope that it works. It, It really worked. I'm trying to forget what the name of that that visual album was it really worked there because it was so short Mm. and so concise and so deeply and emotionally moving 
that I don't know that one about parenthood that's an hour and a half long will really feel um, as meaningful to me, especially with how recent significant awards contenders like Marriage Story and Roma have been, where, you know, it's very much about adults with children and the city around them coming to life um, or the environment or the people around them coming to life through their story. I, I just think that maybe I'm going to feel like this is a little bit played out and then be mm. able to watch it in 10 years and really like it. And because it'll feel more, um, it, it won't be as close to this locality of these other significant releases, but I, I am excited to watch it. Uh, definitely looks like an A24 film. That it does. I like some of those points of reference, like marriage story. Um, you mentioned one other one that's now escaping Roma. me. Roma, yeah, too. of course, Roma, for, especially for just the look of the film. Yeah, even if, the camera frame. Yeah, if there's any resistance that I'm feeling at the same time to this movie, it is, I think, kind of what you're saying. It's almost like kind of the hipness of it mm-hmm. or like a certain tastefulness. Like I do actually kind of ultimately love the things that feel a little rougher around the edges in a way. Um, and this does look like very polished awards fair. It's true. Yeah, very, like, conventionally great. Um, Whereas, you know, the reasons that I like Spike Jonze movies is those spots where they're messy, just like Mm. you're saying. Um, And, like, how transitory uh, they they are and that you watch them and then they're gone. But, like, all the emotions stay. And, like, you almost forget the plot of her, but, like, the emotions of Mm. Scarlett Johansson talking for the first time or when she leaves, those are really impactful, but you can't really remember the exact timeline of like amy adams character or when chris pratt comes in and out of the film like there's there's something really deep there that um worked in that short film that mills made that once again i'm forgetting the name of that i think this this might force the issue a little bit more yeah we'll say i really like the title come on come on uh just the, the evocation of a sense of hurry you know mm-hmm. of, of something a kid might be constantly saying to a dad or or vice versa that's that's a nice uh poetic title i agree on to lamb Michael, this is the directorial debut of Valdemar Johansson. The film's title is Lamb. What do you think? I am mixed on this movie. Um, this is an A24 movie. It very much feels like an A24 movie. Um, I think I like the, the the look of this movie more than I like what's actually kind of going on in it. Um so yeah, I'm mixed. What about you? Where are you at on this movie? Yeah, I like the craftsmanship. I like Numi's performance. Um, I think the cinematography is well executed, but I think that the vision in mind, this hallucinatory image collection to try to evoke something from me, just fails foundationally because I'm I'm confused and I'm wondering like what is actually happening. And I know that there's 
something happening and then the finale like does not pay off in any earnest or, or like sincere way like it's just an empty ending that doesn't provide meaning um and you know i don't know how aware you are but he's he's been interviewed this filmmaker um about whether or not he's basing it on some sort of icelandic uh myth or folktale or something and he's not mm. This is just a collection of things that he wanted to express. He referenced some Mexican folktales for ideas, but this is not representative of a deeper story to him. This is just something that he wanted to do. And I I uh, just feel like it's just so empty, but there's a collection of images that I think are, are interesting and well presented. It's just I, I don't have any meaningful attachment to it. And I honestly forgot I watched it, like, right after I'd watched it. Yeah, I don't know that this is one with much staying power for me either. Um, And I think I would agree with your sentiments about the conclusion of this movie, which I think um, is relatively unimpactful, or not nearly as impactful as I think the movie thinks it is. Um, Or builds it to be. Yeah. Um, But uh, maybe just, like, ground us in the story in the in the story a little bit where with numi rapace and um uh an actor who play a uh childless uh husband and wife we are in iceland i think mm-hmm. uh we're in this rural location um they're in kind of this remote mountainous region um and I think we can kind of just jump right to the crux of this movie, right? I don't know that it's any spoiler to say that they eventually discover one of their um, sheep has given birth to a half lamb, half human creature. What? I had no idea and I watched it. I blew your mind, right? Yeah. I think whether or not you go into this movie knowing that that's what happened in this movie is pretty critical to like how the first half of the movie plays. Um because so much of the, like, I, I, it felt like the first half of the movie, I could be getting the runtime kind of wrong, but it feels like it's really, you know, it's it's um, not telling us just yet what exactly is unique about this lamb that has been born uh-huh. on the farm. It's withholding, it's hiding the, the appendages, the human appendages underneath blankets and stuff like that. Um, for a good while, as if it were a big reveal right. when that so happens. Let's just start there. So... I had a different viewing experience than everyone else, and I must have been on some sort of hallucinogenic water that day, because I, I could have it. sworn that the lamb kind of stands up in the in the darkness uh, when she's in in the crib. Uh, Ada does beside Numi and her sleeping husband, and I could have sworn that every single appendage was a hoof or ended in a hoof at that point in time. And then in the mm-hmm. morning, they were human appendages. Um, now, maybe I'm wrong, mm. but I thought that that's what the shadow cast limbs that I viewed were. Well, you think this creature morphed after it was born into the world? Yes. That I did not see. I, I, I assumed it was born. It was I did too, which is why appendages. I got confused when I saw the appendage that was hoofed. Um, because you can't see the... The legs, they look like they are furry, but mm-hmm. like the the way that she's standing is the, I think the legs either 
exit frame or they're going into blankets so you can't mm. see hoofs there. But it kind of gives me the idea that she has the these sheep appendages and then the ones that are going on top of the crib um, horizontally, like as she's staring down at Numi's character, are, I believe, hoofed. I, I feel very strongly that in that image they are hoofed. <laughs> Um, and I was so befuddled in the morning when they were human. I was like, what had occurred? That is interesting. I would have to go back and look more closely for hooves versus hands. Yeah. <laughs> Key distinction, possibly. Um, but yeah, I think whether or not you go into this movie knowing that that is what in fact is going to be the unique figure in this movie changes the whole movie completely. I think this is actually, this actually weirdly reminded me of like the, the, the way the movie Annette kind of was born into this world where I don't think anyone or I certainly didn't know that the thrust of that movie was going to involve the main couple in that movie having a child that was a puppet. And that was like a big twist, right? This feels like you're waiting half the movie for something you already know. So that was a little bit of an issue where I feel like there's nothing going on for part of the movie because Mm -hmm. it's waiting to tell us something we already had the answer to. So that was a little bit of a problem. And that kind of just speaks to my broader complaint, which is that I feel like there's just not enough going on in this movie. Um, there is some question as to what is um, sort of um, waiting in the mountains um, that is sort of the – there's there's something in, in the mist. There is something um, that is not happy about the fact that this half lamb, half uh, human is with this couple. And we know – something's going to happen. The dread is telling us that. But I think for so much of this movie, it's very dialogue free, which I kind of respect. There's just really not a whole lot to think about. Um, I don't think it's all that complex in its um, portrayal of a couple trying to fill the void for a daughter we learned they lost with this creature. I think there's just not enough there there, if that makes sense. Yeah, I completely agree. This is, um, from what I understand, completely conceived of visually. And it, it definitely feels that way. It feels like the actual narrative came far after the the mm. visual conception because it, it does have excellent tone management. There are some some shots that are, like, very uh, stirring and, and, like, give you a sense of dread or uh, an expectation. Um, I mean, that the opening shot where the the farm door opens and this fog rolls in and there's this ominous dark large figure that is um amorphous within Mm. that that fog is a very evoking image but it it doesn't do anything and then when it does at the end it still proceeds to feel like all the tone had this great emotionality built up and expectation, but then the actual comeuppance, the actual event, just felt like air leaving the room. Like, nothing happened for me at all. It was just like, okay, this is your choice. And then it, it tries to um, give us this, you know, jealous brother sexuality thing where her husband's brother shows up and it seems that they have a previous history and he's trying to blackmail her for sex and mm-hmm. he's or she's making him leave the farm as her husband dies. Like there's just no, like you said, there's no there there. Like there's no meaning (laughs) to any of this at all. But like, there's moments that are conceived with great tonal mastery and that look 
competent, that are acted well, that are presented interestingly. But on either side of what that is, is these sheer edges that lead to nothing. Yeah. I'm with you. I think this um, uh, plot development about the, the brother who comes to visit them and this implied kind of sexual history between the brother and the wife just doesn't carry much of weight or intrigue with it. Um, and again, I said where I think this is to this movie's disadvantage that the characters don't talk more. Like, I think you can reveal kind of contours of their, their history and, um, this little love triangle with words. I don't know that there's really that much exchange between them through glances and that kind of thing. It's more about kind of like shot composition than it is about like visual communication. Um, I don't think the images are actually saying very much. Um, but I do think some of the images, and as you already kind of said, are pretty, pretty compelling. Like, I do think the image of this creature is a pretty interesting one. And I kind of like it. Um, and I kind of like that I think the movie is both kind of playful about it and uh, serious about it. It knows it's a little silly to, like, have this hybrid thing in, like, these little knitted sweaters and overalls and it knows that's kind of amusing but it also isn't trying to like go full camp with it or something like that i think there's something maybe it just gets back to tone which i'm just agreeing with you still that i think i think this is a good thing that that it um plays playfulness and seriousness off of each other i think in a nice way and i think as you mentioned with annette what this actually does well that is easy to overlook is the special effect, however they pulled it off, of Ada, the lamb, mm. seeming to be a tangible part of the composition visually. That's hard to do. Mm. And it, in Annette, it's unquestionable that Annette is Annette. And here yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's questionable because it's like, what the fuck? But it's yeah. it's not questionable in the sense of, is this um, something that's CG stitched in post that looks really bad? This is something that, like, just kind of image-wise feels very real. There's um, a very well-distributed um, press still of Ada standing up in her crib, looking out at out of the window mm. at, at two figures talking, and like that's that's kind of where I'm talking about this tone like working so effectively is it really not only gives you the perspective of this thing that isn't human looking at something, trying to understand what it is through fogged windows. Um, you don't question at all that that lamb is looking like there's mm. you're, you're not even considering that you shouldn't believe that. And that's where mm. I think it's very interesting in its effectiveness. Yeah, um, this is neither good nor bad, just an observation. A movie that came to mind as I watched this was Pet Cemetery, actually, because Pet Cemetery involves a uh, a husband and wife who, you know, lose a child and then try to fill that void by crossing some forbidden line and trying to bring that child back to life. Mm -hmm. um, the couple and Lamb are not trying to revive their the child they lost, but they are, um, you know, crossing some line that the, the fable of this movie tells us is forbidden in some way or it suggests is is not a good idea in an effort to kind of fill that void and these this kind of crossing of boundaries between man and nature I think is um, kind of just a, a theme that seemed to bring Pet Cemetery to mind of all movies um, 
but yeah, I don't know uh, that it really gave me much to chew on beyond that. Yeah, there, there's a moodiness and, you know, a questioning of what ethereal m- imaginings are happening here. There's no Native American burial ground, but there is <laughs> something, you know, that is um, happening. This is probably one of the more disappointing A24 entries that I've seen in quite some time. I'm trying to think of like another A24 that I really just actively didn't enjoy. And yeah, it's hard. It's with, hard. With, with A24, I feel like there, there are some of their movies that just go straight to VOD that mm-hmm. I sometimes don't even oh, see. Oh, good point. So. The, the Pierce Brosnan one. That's oh, the I don't last even know what terrible that is. one. Uh, that? We talked about it. We did? That's not a good sign. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, uh, Hulu one with Alana Glazer <laughs> and Justin Theroux. Oof, we can't even remember the name of it. No. Yikes. It was not yeah, good. You're right. That was A24 as well. But that does speak to just put those two movies together. How, like, you can talk about studios or distributors having kind of a house style. It almost is like A24 has house dread or house tone. Mm-hmm. They all feel the same. And this one's one where it can kind of feel like it's almost a parody of itself. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. The, there's not the whatever happened to make the Vich so sticky mm. and Black Phillips image so jarring or hereditary and Tony Collette. So, you know, a- impactful to your psyche all these years later, that doesn't happen here, but there's still mm. some sort of a mastery of tone and, um, an understanding of how this director wants to compose his visual style. That is a good sign for a directorial debut. It's just, um, one that I would call a misfire. Yeah. That's lame. On to Sir Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. I say before all of you, I spoke the truth. A most unspeakable charge has been brought against you. Jacques Legree entered our home. He attacked me. The accusation is false. The truth does not matter. There is only the power of men. This should be settled quietly. I'm innocent! I request a duel to the death. If you lose, your wife will suffer dire consequences. One of us has lied. Let us let God decide. All right, Michael. You put it off for years. We've just set up the segue talking about ridley scott we just talked about numi rapace so the next title we're talking about on drinking the movies is prometheus right oh that, that wow <laughs> nice nice segue um there's my pitch that's that's gonna be hard to argue with it's been a while since i've seen prometheus i know you are a fan uh i know you were highly anticipating this movie i think this was on your most anticipated of the year right i believe it was i know that it was juggling back and forth i don't know if it ended up there um, it definitely is in very high in my top 10 now. It's way up there, huh? Yeah, it's like five, four or five. Did it take you by surprise or did it just meet your high expectations? It took me by surprise. I mm-hmm. I was anticipating that I didn't expect it to be great, but I always like seeing Ridley's image compositions. I think that there's something about his cinematic shots that is, this is, you know, me bumbling, but... I think he's more cinematic and more stylized and more 
like he captures more cinematic images and presents them in cinematic ways than like any other director like Nolan or Villeneuve or whatever like they don't have this sense of like immensity to a shot that's like just got five people in it but it feels like this big towering bit of cinema that kind of feels like the 1950s golden age of Hollywood like there's there's just something about him that I've always resonated with um and the more that I dig into his filmography, the more that I've come to appreciate his more romantic films that are much more understated. Um, but this is a um, something where it's it's Ridley is riffing on material that I think is great to begin with. And then he's collaborating with these actors to get these fantastic performances. I was just wholly invested in the film the entire time. I never did that check the watch. I never thought yeah. like how much more time is left or you know, that that's that person from that other thing. I, I was just in the world. And, um, you know, it's always exciting to have those types of cinematic experiences. Yeah, I would agree that the image making here does not strike me as self-conscious at all. I think there are very few shots that, like, draw a great deal of attention to themselves, which I think is a very popular kind of filmmaking today. Um, to me, it, it really does feel like the the kind of movie that would have come out, like, style-wise, in, like, the mid, like, aughts, like, 2005 mm-hmm. or something like that. Right after Troy. He's very consistent. He, he's like, no, I'm doing what I've been doing for, like, 20 years. Um, yeah, because really Scott did Gladiator, too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Kingdom um, of Heaven. Yeah, yeah. Like Black he, Hawk Down. He, he's, his, uh, his, his, his style, I don't think, has evolved a, a great deal. Not, not in a bad way. I just mean that it, it looks like a movie from the early 2000s to me. Um... You want to tell us a little bit about uh story here? Yeah, the story is the story of a um, trial by God, which is a name for a duel in which one man's husband is questioning whether or not another man raped her. And that rape is visually presented more than once in this film from altering perspectives. The film itself is based on three different screenplays telling um, kind of a recollection of the same events from three different perspectives. One is written by Matt Damon. It's performed also by Matt Damon. The other is written by Ben Affleck. And that um, main character's act or role is portrayed by Adam Driver. And the third act that I think is demonstrably the best act and unanimously accepted as so is written by Nicole Holof Center. And the central character is Jodie Comer. Uh, who plays Marguerite, who is the victim of the rape and is the one that refuses to not speak up about the fact that she was raped. And then her husband, Matt Damon's character, has to, um, not has to, he chooses to pursue his honor rather than pursue, and in his own sense, he thinks he's preserving her honor, but he's really pursuing his honor. And, um, that leads to a duel in which if he loses, Marguerite will, I believe, be burned alive. And he never consults her on this or tells her that this will happen um, once they begin this. And that is kind of the large arc of what happens in the last duel. But there's a lot of little parts in between that are very important. Yeah. And if you thought a duel would be over after just one charge between the two guys and one hit and they're done, you were wrong. This is a long duel. Yes, it's a very gladiator-inspired <laughs> extended sequence. duel. That is for sure. Pretty cool one. Um, yeah, I think the, the structure here is is pretty interesting. I I think I would agree that the third 
story here, the third chapter is the most inter- interesting one here. Um, for me personally, I do find myself um, with a structure like this. You know, we double back to see things from a different perspective twice in this movie, right? We see things once through the eyes of Matt Damon's character, then Adam Driver's, then Jodie Comer's. Um, I would be lying if each time we did that, I didn't feel a little bit to myself like, ugh, we're going back again. It just goes against my sense of, like, progression that I actually do struggle a little bit um, with a movie like this. Um, There's just an instinct I have towards, like, forward momentum, even though I think this is, you know, the the whole point of the movie is to view the same thing through multiple multiple perspectives. That does hold me back, I think, from just, like, totally loving this movie is um, the sense of momentum or, or lack thereof that I get from it. Um, but I think it's totally appropriate for what the movie wants to do. So I'll just put that out there. Yeah, it's um, a very subjective reaction, of course. I, I really like dramas that play like this, where you kind of become wholly invested in the story, and then the story changes on its head, and all of a sudden the hero of the river charge is now going to have died without this man who thinks that he's an idiot saving him. And then... You know, following that up with like, well, n- neither of those actually is what happened. And, you know, here's what did. I, I've just always liked that style of storytelling when it's executed well. When it's executed poorly, it's kind of there's nothing worse because you're going mm-hmm. through the same events over and over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's not getting any better. It's just getting worse and worse. So I, I totally get that. For me, it worked. I mean, that's, you know, why Edge of Tomorrow for me works mm. is because it's, you know, improving and it's it's um, aware of its its tone and and all that stuff and i think that ridley is very aware of of what he's conveying visually and like you said i i don't think there's a self-awareness to it i don't think that it's forced onto the viewer the fact that he's aware of what he's doing but he's doing it at such a masterful level that it's just small nuances to the way that he's changing these shots from adam driver to matt damon that really conveys a difference in um, not only who's commanding the scene, but how these characters see themselves mm-hmm. and how that, that differs. Um, right. Cause it, it almost seems like some of these scenes are the exact same scene, but then you notice um, that his shoulders are kind of a, a little bit more rigid um, than they were in the previous scene. If it's Adam driver or something, he's, he's less stooped now. And you realize like, okay, that this is a different take, but it's the same event. And it's these little things that Ridley is controlling to present this image that um, you just don't question. Yeah. Yeah, what's, what, I, what I find very clever about this structure is that, you know, the inciting incident of this movie essentially is this rape. And you would kind of suspect that to be a movie in which there are really like two truths we're primarily concerned with not three it mm-hmm. would be the perspectives of the two people involved the assailant and the victim here and we would see that both incidents or the incident from both perspectives and we do get that but we also we actually start with the truth so uh as it's said on the title card mm-hmm. the perspective of the person who's not present when that incident occurs so it's like well what truth are we hearing or getting here um and it's you know the truth about um matt damon's relationship with adam driver and sort of what they um how they see the events they experience together um but you know it's also the truth about his 
marriage to the person he's um to the person who was the victim in this incident right um it seems like uh you know according to him he is a chivalrous husband and from her her the truth for her is that it is a terrible miserable marriage um so the I, yeah the, the, it's clever to have a structure that doesn't um just involve the two perspectives you would need, think you would get from this story that's interesting so you read it as she had a terrible marriage the whole time? No, I'm, that was a very reductive uh, way of putting it. But I think the truth, according to Matt Damon, is that his wife is content with him. And the yes. truth from her perspective is that to go to bed tonight or go to, to go to bed every night with him is miserable. And I don't think she is particularly happy in this marriage. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely an arc to it because it's not like she, she didn't seem interested even in her own storyline in him at the beginning. True. Um, Very true. So there's, there's definitely like a shift there. And then there's how Matt Damon, um, his character does a, a lighter version of what Adam Driver's character does, which is like force contentment onto anyone who he views as his subordinate. Um, mm. the other thing that I really like about this film is how these side characters come to life in different ways that, that aren't part of the three acts or that don't get their own main central character. Um, his mother, that her difference in perspective from Matt Damon's arc of act one to the Jodie Comer, um, arc is very different. You, you feel mm. very different mm-hmm. things towards the mother between those two acts and the same happens um with ben affleck in the first two um Mm -hmm. and how he builds himself up in in one way as being this um bad guy and your uncertainty about whether or not adam driver is poisoning his ear Mm -hmm. and then the way that that builds in in part two and then that affleck ends up being like the worst character in the film because he's the one that tells adam that he shouldn't tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's just like, oh, it's brutal. Yeah, I uh, I really love Ben Affleck's look in this movie, where he has this, like, blonde hair and a uh, little, like, beard, just a little chin beard that is just, like, the, the perfect look that I would expect, like, a 14th century D-bag to have. Yep. Like, that is so current but yet so 14th century at the same time it's the perfect look for that character who is he just really knows how terrible. to nail a dude <laughs> <laughs> it really does um and he's, he's pretty convincing in that regard i think he's i think he's doing good work here mm-hmm. I, I completely agree um i mean you can't talk about the film properly without talking about the rape um how do you think it played do you think that it was used well and that um you know as well as something like that can be and that it it made a a point that's worthwhile or or do you think that it um didn't go anywhere um i i've i have many feelings about that uh part of the movie i think the the subtlety and the differences between you know adam driver's character's perspective and jody comer's character's perspective are really uh finely done you know the how it suggests that Adam Driver's character is almost delusional and how he sees this as some kind of like playful incident they had. Well, it, it's um, layered with that previous incident with Ben Affleck where he 
basically rapes a girl in front of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, the difference between how she kicks off her shoes, the speed at which yep. she runs up the stairs. He sees it as some kind of playful withdrawal. And she, of course, does not. And it's very upsetting, very, very upsetting to, um, witness her version in particular, though both, I think, are quite um, unnerving. Her version is so much worse because of the first version. Oh, yeah. It, Where you're seeing yeah. reality. Yeah. Or reality insofar as she observed it. As far as I'm concerned, it's reality, but yeah. there's definitely arguments to be made. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess what's kind of interesting is that like this movie is obviously... Um, working with something that is more discussed like today than it ever has, has been, been forever. Yeah, and I think like the like one of the really difficult parts of rape accusations, um, often ha- or sexual assault ac- um, accusations in general, usually has to do with the fact that it is just a he said, she He's- said scenario. Um, and we don't know <laughs> what actually transpired and that, and we're left to figure out how do we respond to this? The movie is because it's a movie just letting us in to this, to this room to see what actually happened. Um, so it is sort of, you know, um, uh, releasing us from like the most difficult part about these like situations usually, which, um, I don't know. It's just like noteworthy to me. I don't. I don't know if that it, that it's a problem. It's just this movie's choice. But I do think, um, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm still processing. Yeah. Fair. Uh, what'd you make of it? Uh, well, it's never fun to have to figure out how to use words to talk about rape. But I will say, um you know, what I think is just foundationally true about human behavior, philosophy, everything. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Anything that is putting its heart on its sleeves and this earnest about presenting something like this, I I think is a great thing because it normalizes the conversation about rape in a way that is, as you mentioned, not historically true. And whether or not you agree or disagree with the material or the events or the presentation or the cinematic merit or the artistic qualities of The Last Duel, you can't say that it impeded the ability of culture to have a conversation about rape. And I think that that's really fascinating. And I think that giving Nicole Hall of Center that control at the end to write something that feels so sincere and really um, upsetting. But, you know, it to me, I, I found that whole act uh, three to be the most talented um, portrayed act. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible thing that happens, but it's made with such love and, and care that it just, for me and my objectives in life of, as I said, sunlight being the best disinfectant, this is a good thing. And I, I like the film besides that, but I, I think that what it's done, I can't like even Gaspar in the way, um, provocateur galore, irreversible. It wasn't really this effective. I mean, it was great at starting conversations about rape, but I don't know that they went 
to the place that these conversations about the last duel will get to in utility of, um, you know, resources if, you know, you, you need them or just the ability to have a hard conversation after going to the theater um, because it's not like anybody really went to go see a reversible um, in a theater in America and then had a conversation on the way home. Yeah. Um, it's kind of funny is that, like, I feel like, you know, the word patriarchy has, you know, been in our ca- vocabulary in the past few years like it never has been before. Mm-hmm. So to put the kind of situation that that usually um, leads someone to use the word patriarchy in some way, back in the context where they're where women were literally the property of their husbands is uh yeah and a an interesting idea france yeah, yeah it's mm. it's a it's a very i think that that's why it's so effective right because the that's the goal of of the me too movement is to have these conversations and to to not stigmatize them and it like i i just can't think of anything else that's been this effective or or is this artistically merited yeah um yeah, I, you know, I it's weird how you come away from this movie just almost kind of describing it as a social issue trauma mm-hmm. drama. Um, Even though it's a period piece. Yeah, um, I, I I like most of the third act. I think the third act is also where it's kind of like bluntest and mm-hmm. it most most impactful. Also, sometimes like the most heavy handed. Actually, for me, a little bit. Um, I think that's a really. Um, salient point that is brought up between Jodie Comer and her Mm mother-in-law when the mother-in-law expresses this kind of bitterness towards Jodie Comer for wanting to be vocal about her being raped when the mother says you're not the first everyone else has always um tolerated it or they don't have the privilege to speak about speak out about it like you do um I, sometimes there are pieces in this movie like that that feel like they are more about the um, more about what it wants to represent rather than sort of like the specificness of these characters. The mom, the mother-in-law, is pretty blunt as she comes out and and talks about that kind of thing that feels just a little on the nose mm-hmm. in a way. You're right. It it is forced into the conversation and I'm sure Hall of Center had no disillusions about the objective of this mother character from the get-go and how she wanted Matt Damon to write it so that she could pull off what she does. I think for me, the reason why I don't care is because I like it. I like the message. I don't feel like it's a lie. Like I don't, Mm. as much as it is a deliberate, um, conversational piece that makes it so that anybody watching even if you're looking at your phone can't miss the point Mm. i think the point is of enough merit that i valued it um but i I can definitely see how that that would you know color the screenplay in a way that isn't beneficial if you're looking for something less um pronounced yeah um which, yeah, I think does put this movie at a little bit of a risk in my mind as one I'll re- remember more for its, like, so- social message than the specificity of its characters. Um, 
you're not going to think about like the dope river battle scene where he rips the chainmail off and just starts punching the guy in the face in the middle of the river. That's just the kind of thing that doesn't do a whole lot for me. You know, that's the kind of thing we do get a couple times in this movie, which for me, like, I don't know, I could I, I personally could swap that out with battles from like any other medieval movie and I would be more or less as as numb to it. Um, that's that doesn't that just doesn't really get my blood. Pumping. We really need to work on medieval epics. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's a matter of taste. Um, but uh, I, I I think it works as well as it does for me because of um, the acting. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's pretty consistent um, across the board. Um, and after talking about Lamb and talking about how little seems to be communicated with glances and body language that is very much not the case in this one where it's all about what's communicated with body language and i like that a lot i do too yeah it's it's interesting for me to try to visually imagine and you know tangibly imagine how this movie hits for you just because we're having such foundational like reaction like this is i mean the medieval violence is like i've loved this since i was someone who didn't have memories like this Mm. is just my bread and butter. So if what you're going for within the film is just its its dramatic content and its character interaction, then I can totally see having that difference. It's the way that it makes a medieval epic battle sequence so grounded in the humanity and the images are of such high quality. I, I guess maybe you are a little bit numb to it to begin with, but I, I would argue that these are perhaps the best looking images in a medieval epic like in the last... 15 years or so like there there's a certain sequence where it doesn't fisheye but it's it's just like this voluminous like uh, i i don't even know how to put it it feels like you're looking at something bigger than life on the screen and it's just sheer um it's like visceral and it it's kind of emboldened and it's it's highlighted and it it's just awesome to look at and it's epic but it's just this small fight sequence with maybe five men in frame but the way that it's it's just composed and visually conveyed is uh like it's an image that i can't get out of my head um it's stuck there and yeah to not have that experience it would just be such a different movie that i i it's hard for me to adapt (laughs) yeah the aesthetic here is very different from something like the green knight where there Mm -hmm. are any large-scale battles in that movie anyways but the way in every detail in that movie feels very much put in place to me, like mm-hmm. by by a crew member. Um, this one actually feels a little bit more lived in um, and organic. Um, and I, I, I like many of the images in The Green Knight, but there is a uh, fussiness in that movie that I do not get at this a point. A sterility. Mm, yeah, that's fair. But that's that's a great point. I never thought that I wasn't looking at what I was looking at, which is like a great score. Like I just realized that I never questioned the environment. It all felt very real. That's uh, something I didn't realize. Yeah. I've, uh, I don't know the name of the actress who played Jodie Comer's um, mother off the top of my head. I don't recognize her. So I don't think I've seen her before, but I thought she was great in that role, even though I think some of those, you mean her mother-in-law? Mother-in-law, yes. Okay. Sorry, okay. mother-in-law. Yeah. Um, and some of the wardrobe she has that are these, like, you know, black 
cloaks and stuff and those like the headdresses um she has such a just she has such striking features um and and how that fits her role as this cold um unwelcoming mother-in-law is just perfect she's great she is great her name i believe is harriet walter and you definitely have seen her okay in babel atonement rocket man star wars but if I'm mm. not mistaken, she was she did a run in Game of Thrones as a significant character. Mm. Um, I think one of the political, um, like head of houses in the in the political city in Game of Thrones. But, anyways, mm. um, yeah. If if you did like this movie and you especially liked the conversation that it had about Me Too, I would recommend on Netflix a limited series starring Margaret Qualley and Andy McDowell called Maid. Um, mm. It's not about rape. It's about domestic violence. But it, I think it's also very effective, visually communicative, well-constructed, well-made, sincerely composed. And it's it's high quality. And what's funner than watching Margaret Qualley and her actual mom play mom and daughter. So Yeah. Yeah. As I was, uh, what you said, that one is not about rape. Right? It's not. It's about domestic violence. Domestic violence. Got it. Yeah. As I was thinking about representations of rape and the value of when you show it or don't show it, um, I thought a little bit about um, the miniseries Unbelievable with um, yeah, Caitlin Deaver. Caitlin Deaver. Yep. Um, I, I responded to that show's portrayal of it through, again, the the victim's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, also also interesting but yeah i, I was thinking about the nightingale but i feel like that's not quite the right conversation fit the nightingale i can't think of what the nightingale is What's it's an one? australian film um i believe from the filmmaker oh, of right. the babadook mm. um and there's a oh yeah a horrendous rape scene i think we saw it at the amc saddle 10 together oh yeah um but it i mean it's it's a very well-made film and i think it 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 handles that trauma in an interesting way, but it's a different conversation piece than this um, is. Very true. Very true. Also very disturbing. <laughs> yes. Very. Uh, yeah. Almost. I, I don't know that you could make a claim about worse, <laughs> but it's, it's a viscerally affecting scene. Yeah. Um, anything else on the last stool? I'm ready to move on to our last title. If you are. Nope, I'm going to force you to tell me your favorite scene. I wasn't interested for Lamb, but I am for The Last Duel. Boy, the first thing that comes to mind is... I mean, it's it's not the rape itself from Jodie Comer's perspective, but just those couple shots leading up to it because of those little differences uh, versus... Adam Driver's perspective. I think that's so well played. Just the speed at which she's running, um, the couple things he says, the the change in tone of voice is small, but like makes all the difference in the world. Um, that was pretty great. What about you? Uh, boy, spinning it back on me. I'll just be honest and I'll say that it's a sequence where Matt Damon goes away and it's a very fast sequence that shows his events um, fighting in a war. And it's, it's got one of those amazing shots of violence that is just like 
exactly the camera is exactly where it should be there's no attention drawn to it there's all this activity happening and it's all perfectly framed and it it expresses itself directly to the viewer and it's it just moves on um i love that stuff i will also say dramatically the effectiveness of the scene in which Matt Damon forces Marguerite, played by Jodie Comer, to kiss Adam Driver's character to show there's no ill will. It's a mm. very interesting scene. I, I'm not done processing that sequence. Yeah, for sure. Very charged. Yeah, because it's the godfather of his child. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, anyways, on to No Time to Die. We used to be able to get into a room with the enemy. Now they're just floating in the ether. When her secret finds its way out, it'll be the death of you. Oh my God. Target enough people. And the people become the weapon. Who is he? James, you don't know what this is? James Bond. Licensed to kill. In love with Madeline Swan. I could be speaking to my own reflection. Only your skills die with your body. And life is all about leaving something behind. Isn't it? All right, Michael. We're talking about Kerry Joji Fukunaga again. I think it's been about three years since we talked about Maniac very early in the podcast's run. We are now talking about his 007 effort, No Time to Die, starring Daniel Craig, Lea Seydoux, Ana de Armas, Ray Fien. What do you think? I had a decent time with this movie. I really did. Uh, maybe my critical faculties just fell apart while watching this because I feel like I enjoyed this more than most people I know. I was just expressing the sentiment to someone else as well. Um, I'll start there. What about you? What was your, uh, what was your reaction? I did not like this movie. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And we're off. From the start. Uh, did you do any Bond homework ahead of this one? Because I was not prepared at all for how related to the previous films it was so i did and i did it in 2020 about Mm. a month before it was gonna come out (laughs) dang it so um i still have it loosely in my mind i think specter is one of my least favorite bonds in this modern one i watched that and maybe skyfall um and i'm really kicking myself that i didn't watch casino royale because i think that's Mm. the one that i even though I've seen all these, like, Casino Royale is the one that I remember the most, like, mm-hmm. um, single moments or images from, whether it's the the monkey knot, you know, hitting him in the, mm-hmm. the bottom and the testicles, and that, that, that chair that's empty, <laughs> or just, like, some of the sequences um, where he's doing spy shit. Um, yeah, I, I didn't like this movie. I don't believe any of the dramatic... Um, elements that are happening. It's all entirely unconvincing to me, but the action cinematography is cool, and the Cuba sequence is one of the best Bond sequences that's ever happened in my memory. Yeah, I think, for me, it's all about expectations going in, and I don't think I expected to be enthralled by the dramatic 
contours of this movie anyways so i think i just had a low bar going into this movie to be honest um the characters are talking about specter the, as a group uh characters from previous films like blofelt played by um why am i blanking on who plays christoph waltz christoph waltz of course totally forgot he was even in one of the previous films um, a lot of, lots of the connections to previous films just went right over my head, but I guess I felt like the broad points of any Bond movie are there, that, like, we have our villain, he's got plans that are catastrophic, the stakes are global, there's a love interest, that's kind of it. I don't know that I just, I just, I think my, my expectations are low, um, on a narrative level for these movies, um... So I, it was an easy hurdle for it to clear. And I think this is a decently shot movie. I think lots of the set pieces are pretty enjoyable for me. I think it's pretty front loaded in that respect. Um, uh, did you get much of a thrill, at least out of the, the action itself? Yeah, I mean, I think the action is where it's most competent. And I think it's mm-hmm. screenplay is where it's most incompetent. I think Four Riders is, like, universally never good, essentially. Like, there's very... The exceptions for me prove the rule here. Like, mm. that you can show me, like, a few things where there's, like, eight writers or whatever, and it's just amazing. Or, like, great limited series or television shows where certain teams take over the writing responsibilities of stuff. But a feature film that's trying to juggle all these other movies and references, as well as, like, improvise this new stuff. Like, the comedy didn't work at all when they were not on Cuba for me on Mm. Cuba. Everything works. It's very easy when you have someone as magnetic and effortless and charming as Ana de Armas to pull off some heavy lifting that Craig making witty remarks or Leia Sadu making those remarks or, or trying to be jokey just doesn't work for me. Um, Malik's entire character didn't work. Um, I've heard other people say that they think his, his, performance was good but the character was bad and for me it's just from top to bottom like i didn't believe anything about it i thought that the performance didn't work because the character didn't seem real there's there's this namelessness and this facelessness to like it's just this void of a bad guy that's embodied by someone who's small and seemingly hasn't aged and has these scars and like it's it's like an impression of a bad guy that isn't really a bad guy. There's just so many little things that I don't like. But then there's like the moment where he has to fight his way up a stairwell near the end. Mm. That's just dope. It is dope. I like that scene. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. To me, there's a lot of like uh, uh, black hat mimicry in the last stretch of the movie. Um, it's hard not that... to copy the goats. It's true. It's true. Um, Black Hat is directed by Michael Mann and stars Chris Hemsworth for every single human that doesn't get that reference. It's a good movie. Um, yeah, I would agree. I don't think Remy Malik's very good at all. Um, I think it, it does feel like a pretty standard Bond villain to me, though. Um, really? Because you see him for, like, the least amount of any character, I, I think. Like, the amount of time that you get with this villain is... And Bond is, like, none. It's, it's true. Um, you know, it's partly just the fact that, like, I'm I'm, I'm making comparisons to... I'm, I'm like, m- my point of reference here are other Bond movies. 
and I don't even have very many of those fresh in my mind. Mm. So I guess I'm just thinking to myself, yeah, he's another Bond villain with a very striking feature. He kind of just checks the box, which is not a uh, rousing endorsement by any means. I don't think it's very good character. I, I don't think the performance very is very good, but it kind of just gets the ball moving in this movie to lead me through the action, um, which was kind of just enough for me in this case. This will not be anywhere near the top of my list when I kind of take in the year as a whole, but, you know, I can't say I had an unpleasant time digesting a lot of this, put it that way. Yeah, I think of villains like Mads Mikkelsen or Javier Bardem or Christoph Waltz, as you mentioned, and they're just all so much more memorable and interesting to watch than Rami. Mads Mikkelsen was Casino Royale. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the chair scene yeah. that you were referencing. Yes, pretty good scene. Pretty great character. <laughs> great, great actor, right? Um, so something that I was stewing on this morning is like, why... Where, why, what, why don't I like this movie? Like, why, why do I feel not connected? And I was thinking about, like, other things that are doing this. And I I was just thinking about how much better Mission Impossible is to me than James Bond. Like, how Mm. much more I'm engaged by that. I enjoy Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames characters. Um, Mm. You know, the the adding of Vanessa Kirby and Rebecca Ferguson's arcs and, and their characters is is so much more meaningful to me and and expressive and evocative than anything that happens in this movie. And like, why is that? And I don't have a good answer because I love (laughs) Craig. Uh, Leia Sadu is in Mission Impossible at one point. Um, And I love her, but I don't like her at all here. I think that she's not acting very well and it looks very forced to me. Reminds me of Tiffany Haddish in The Card Counter where I'm watching her respond to like instructions of how she's supposed to be rather than her just being the way that she was in blue is the warmest color, which I think is one of her best. Um, Mm. So there's just so many things that don't work. But then I think about like the American version of of the spy movie and like, why do I love mission impossible? And just like feel so empty towards this. It really is like the point of comparison, especially because of how the mission impossible movies have been, interrelated to each other like mm-hmm. this da- like the daniel craig movies have tried to be um and like mich- arguably one and two like aren't right in mission impossible like mission oh. impossible and mission impossible 2 oh right very like much they, so. they aren't really and then mission impossible 3 kind of begins like this self-referential canon which is kind of maybe even what this bond series is doing where like in three it starts to kind of reference a little bit more and then four references um one again right because Ava Green's in the first one, right? I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, in Mission Impossible, it's Michelle Monaghan. Is that her name? Yeah. Who plays um, Ethan Hunt's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's kind of a continuing love interest throughout the movies. Um, and it does work better there. There's there's no doubt about that. I think you're right. I'm not quite sure why either, but I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um I think I even think like I think it feels like the movies are coming out um, with about as many years in between each other. Yeah, um, it's true. I almost think there's maybe more playfulness to the Mission Impossible series, whereas the yeah. James Bond movie tries to be a little bit more dour in a way that it's like, come on, like who's gonna buy that? Yeah, um, it's <laughs> like 
it's a little bit more like salty and it's top down, right? It's it's M and it's Q and and then it goes down, you know, and there's money penny and mm-hmm. uh, you know, but with Mission Impossible it's like there's some government stooges, but then there's Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames, and Tom Cruise. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's a buddy action comedy at some level, even though it's enormous and larger than life events, it still feels very grounded in a way that like this never felt in scope for me. I, I, mm. I still don't believe the events of the film. Um, yeah. Outside of the Cuba segment and like the Billy Magnuson, um, Jeffrey Wright sequence on the boat. Like there's certain things that do, but that whole finale and this idea of these nanobots just I, very I, silly. I can't buy premise. it. It reminds me of Agent Cody Banks in a very big way. <laughs> mm. Well, yeah, and you know you have a character like uh, Ray Fiennes, Fiennes, Ray Fiennes, one of the two. I think it's Ray Fiennes, but I'm Ray Fien. not positive. He is taking all of this very seriously, mm-hmm. like way too seriously. Um, I think that's a problem. Um, because no one is going to take this as seriously as that character is. Um, there definitely is some levity that's missing, I think, uh, that would make all the kind of like narrative nonsense more palatable. Um, yeah. It's, James Bond is kind of a tricky character because very, very unlike Ethan Hunt in the Mission Impossible, he has things that we expect. We expect the martinis we expect him to say his name each time and it's like you know after a certain number of times of of watching that how does that not start to just feel like the boxes are being checked how do you keep that feeling like it's um organic or even something this character actually does yeah but ethan hunt is always flirtatious he always hits on a hot girl at a bar while he's ordering something and then she always like undercuts him and he, like, loses that fight or whatever. Um, you, you know, like, he has his own things, too. Or he'll he'll think that he's going to do something and then barely not die because Simon Pegg is a nerd. Or barely not oh, die because true. Ving Rhames is ripped and, uh, you know, a god of a man. Like, there's there's certain conventions that, that he has, too. Or, like, he'll always be defeated by a woman that he's not suspecting to be his equal or something. Yeah. Um, and uh, Vanessa Kirby or... Um, Rebecca Ferguson's cases um, or like his life will be saved by them or everything he loves will be saved by them. Um, So there's, there's those repetitive motifs for me in mission impossible. It's just, there's a freedom there that isn't self serving and self referential. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where this kind of gets a flat tire is it's just how much it's trying to reference Ian Fleming and the previous Mm -hmm. works that have been made. Um, yeah, I I mean, there's there's the great sequence that you see in the trailer where he's on the bridge and the car is charging at him and he has to duck behind a, a concrete little um, tiny bulwark type of a thing and the car mm-hmm. flips and then he jumps and off the bridge. and Like, it's all awesome. <laughs> but in service of what? Like a romance that oh, I don't yeah. believe in with Madeline, played by Leia Sadu? Like, I, I just, I could not believe that he was in love with her. There's nothing about that that seemed real. I am completely with you. I think the 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 child 
is just a, a terrible development for this story to take. I don't think the family drama is which is worse, nanobots or the child, or the fact that they're completely dependent on mattering on each different plot device. Well, I know there's something about like Remy Malik in particular holding that child that the image is just so ridiculous and Mm -hmm. it's taking itself so seriously that does not work at all or the poison farm (laughs) with like all of these employees without like Mm. addressing the cult that ever happened or why or there yeah they're so and then you think of that cuba sequence i don't know about you but that's just like it felt like a different movie like i loved it at such a high level well, yeah, in that, like, club sequence where the, the gas first starts coming down, mm-hmm. you have those waiters who are all marching out into the crowded room at once. There's almost, like, a little bit of campiness there to that scene um, that it does. I'm like, oh, man, this movie's like, going to ha- be having a little bit of fun. Yeah, because it's orchestrated from, like, a great villain played by Christoph Waltz, right? Yeah, I mean, you compare that... And the scene. eyeball on the platter or whatever? Yeah. Like, if this were a Batman movie, that scene is like the Batman movie with George Clooney. You know, yeah, the it's campy the Batman one. that we grew up with, where yeah. Danny DeVito was Penguin. Yeah, and then the rest of this movie becomes much more self-serious. Um, compare that to this scene of Rami Malek in his, like, monastic temple uh, and Zen Garden on a Japanese island, it's, like, so far afield from the tone established in Cuba, uh, which is not great. Right, not but great. it's a it's a Japanese nuke island, like... Nuke island, just, yes. <laughs> and it's, it's a poison farm, and it just... It, I have so few words to try to make sense of this. And, yeah, logistics-wise, I could just dig into that island and why it makes no sense. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Don't do it. Don't put yourself through that. <laughs> Spare yourself. Like, when was this constructed? Like, when did they get this nuclear technology? The argument is during World War II? Like, what's happening? Or is the argument that it's part of the Cold War and that Russia constructed it? And if so, then how could Japan possibly dispute the claim to the island? <sighs> yeah. I think I would much prefer that the Bond movies be self-contained in the future versus... Me too be an evolving story yeah this cinematic universe thing is not smart especially when you're trying to backload it it wasn't constructed Mm -hmm. to to do so and then you have the same writers that that constructed all these other ones since like 1998 or whatever trying to then back reference their own screenplays if you wanted to do that, you should have constructed them to be sequential to begin with and had an idea of an arc and then um, consulted with screenwriters and directors that agreed with your vision and, and could embellish that and improve on it. Instead, it, it's just hand-wringing to try to make itself reflexive, relevance, relevant. And uh, I mean, it's it, for me, it just isn't nearly as enjoyable or um, memorable as what the hell was that like die another day where Denise Richards is a nuclear physicist. It's like the most absurd thing. Pierce Brosnan is skiing down the mountain, like half the movie. Mm. It makes no sense, but it's funny and it's fun. And like, it's an enjoyable action movie, even though it's terrible. And this is like really competently made, but it's three hours of hand wringing over creating emotional stakes that weren't there. And then arguing that they were there and trying to prove it. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I'll broaden the picture just 
slightly because I'm curious since we are same as we are the same age. When you just think of James Bond, generally, mm-hmm. does your mind go to a particular James Bond? Yeah, Pierce Brosnan. Me too. Right, that's who yeah. we grew up with. Yeah, second. Yeah. Who's who's your second James Bond? Sean Connery. Correct. <laughs> this is the right answer. <laughs> Got it all figured out. Third, third is Daniel Craig, right? <laughs> Definitely, because he's current. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the rest just kind of disappear in my, in my memory, but yeah, I mean, I met James Bond as Pierce Brosnan. He will always yeah. be the one I think who comes to mind. And then as kids, who was like bigger and more like meaningful of it, like a a classic actor than Sean Connery. Yeah, exactly. Right? The hunt for Red October. Like, (laughs) come on. Um, And then, you know, we we learn that he was 007. And I think I saw a couple. But yeah, it's it's interesting how big of a societal memento 007 is and, and whoever plays this James Bond character. Do you... Did you like the ending? Do you feel that this is a, a good end of the character? <laughs> Not really, no. Um, You're like, out. I didn't hate this movie. It was bad, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of exactly it. And I think it's, it's partly just a matter of like what the other offerings are at the movies at any given time. So like, I have moving, moving uh, standards here, which is not exactly fair, but it's just the way it is. I think the ending is very silly and thinks... Thinks we care more about Daniel Craig leaving as Bond than I think I do. I'm like perfectly fine with sending him on his way, having someone new. I make makes no difference to me. Um, I I hope it's someone I like. I hope it's someone who's good. But I am like in no way emotionally attached to Daniel Craig as James Bond, even though I think he's fine. I've enjoyed him. Let's move on though. Totally good with it. I don't think this needs to be an emotional goodbye for me. What about you? Yeah, I agree. So first things first is you said that you compared against what else is in theaters. And I do too, which is why I think I was so disappointed I was watching this instead of Venom, which mm. I really do want to see. Um, so th- there's that. Like, I was like, what else could I do with these three hours? Um, so I might be wrong because I'm not a big James Bond guy, but I thought that like we didn't, I didn't n- I'm unaware of if when Bond has changed previously, they directly address it. And Mm. I think it's a lot more effective to do this ethereal transitory thing where all of a sudden it's a different person playing James Bond and no questions asked. Like there's something magical about that. I completely agree. (laughs) And you lose that magic by addressing directly that like someone's not going to play this character that preceded them. Like, I, I don't care. This isn't the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the more you try to make it like that, the more you're losing what can't be greatness you already had. And the fact that Pierce Brosnan became Daniel Craig and I didn't care because I wanted to watch James Bond. I'm completely with you. I love that about the older James Bond movies. At some point, like all the all the, the cast members, James Bond included, just changed, and you just had to accept that. And there was no <laughs> comment about it. Um, they don't need to be interconnected. Uh, I completely agree about the the magic of that. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think he's almost on a little bit of a pedestal right now. The question of like. Who plays James Bond is it seems like this monumental question that I think is is made out to be more than it needs to be. 
Um, and it only inflates expectations beyond what I think is good for the movie. <laughs> I think that we got to go back to Michael Caine. I think we got to do back it. To who? Michael Caine. He's 88. Oh, right. He's decided mm. to retire from acting. I think it's time <laughs> we have an 88-year-old James Bond and Clint Eastwood plays the villain. <laughs> that could be that could be interesting. Uh I don't think we know it. Do we know anything yet about uh I'm a little confused actually about the status of who the next James Bond even is. It was odd to me that they kind of half suggested that a character we meet in this movie has been That's Lashana Lynch, right? Right, yeah. who's been given the new title of 007. Mm-hmm. Uh but she is not the next James Bond, correct? I not feel like that I'm aware of. I think that they were just doing that as a gag within the film. Yeah. Which I, I think is maybe they were also testing, per, perhaps, yeah. within the film. But I I mean, in conversations that I've had, like, the unanimous thing is, like, she's just not magnetic enough. Like, you, mm. you if you're going to go that direction of, of a, a black woman like Letitia Wright or someone that's, mm. like, very magnetic and, like, very pulling um, with the way that she presents herself and, like, her mannerisms... Um, but I mean, for me, if, if they're going to stick to the old thing um, of, you know, a white dude from the UK, I, I was thinking actually normal people's Paul Mescal, I think would be a really mm. interesting choice just with his age and lack of acting and very many projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that he'd be a great surprise because he's so young compared to what we're yeah. used to and that you could do a lot more practical effects with someone like him. And he's he's in great shape. So. That's yeah. just someone that I was thinking about because if you go with Tom Hardy, you got two or three movies max because he's mm-hmm. in his early forties or something now. Um, you can't go with Killian Murphy; he's in his fifties, I think. So yeah. I, I was just trying to kind of think of like these great the actors, yeah. And I went with an Irish one instead, Paul <laughs> oh, Mescal. Yeah. Oh yeah, but yeah. yeah, yeah. I I thought that was odd because I am not up to date on like Bond gossip and the status of who the next bond is i was almost confused thinking like is this a really half-assed introduction to the next bond because it's not i an thought introduction. so too and then i read um, something that it wasn't but um another thing that i i've considered is like how great would it be for like dev patel who i believe mm. is is a uk native oh yeah, yeah. um or um the riz ahmed like those mm. those would be very interesting uh 007s to bring in totally since idris elba aged out I'm sure we'll find out in three to five years, which is just too long. I don't think that the time between movies does them any favors. It creates this kind of scarcity value that just makes the movies. It just elevates expectations beyond what I think is in the best interest of the movie, which is what already happened with the delay. I think I think I would have been a lot more favorable if I saw it much more quickly Um, to know that it's a rush shoot. Danny Boyle Mm. left. They had to conceive Mm. of it, you know, that whole thing. And the fact I, I don't get the sense or they haven't marketed that they've been working on the next one and it's going to come out next year. And the fact that you've had all this time to work on another one and cast mm. the next Bond and get on with it and use this momentum isn't being used. It's yeah, there's a lot of extracurricular things to the film that I'm not approving of. Yeah. And only... I know we're talking about No Time to Die a lot longer than I thought we would, but that's great. Me too. This is Some of these are bigger topics, but I think that's fine. When I was talking about this compared to what else is offered at the multiplex, 
I like that the Bond franchise and the Mission Impossible franchise are action movies that just involve regular humans doing extraordinary human things versus the Marvel movies, which have their superhero dimension to them, the Venoms, which have their CG monsters dimension. These are humans with sex drives and Mm -hmm. interest in each other and good intentions and bad intentions. It just feels more earthly to me, which is very appealing and often... uh, it has sex appeal in a way that I think a lot of Hollywood does not right now. It feels very just sort of uh, neutered in a way. I like that these feel like living, breathing, flesh and blood people. Um, maybe not Remy Malik in this one, but generally speaking about the Bond and Mission Impossible franchises. Yeah, they're more grounded. You know, F9 is like a superhero movie mm. with vehicles. Yeah, whereas yeah this exactly. Is like, you know, even if you don't believe it, it's got these human qualities even if there's like an ewok fight sequence in the middle of a forest it has these human qualities (laughs) yeah perfect comment about f9 by the way because that is humans you're right but it is a superhero movie with cars that's exactly right yeah and i mean they're pulling up the cinematic universe thing better than james bond did Mm. so um yeah i mean there's there's a lot more to this movie obviously it's almost three hours long but is there really yeah, is there really? I, I think that we've summed up why the plot doesn't work without spending too much time on it. So I will ask you, Michael, do you have a favorite scene? Cuba. It's it's the Cuba stretch, no doubt. Um, which I feel like is like the consensus. Am I wrong about that? No, it is the consensus. And I okay. believe it's the last sequence they shot in the film. Really? Ah, interesting. Uh, yeah, I think it looks the best. Um, I think it's the most... Uh, lively. I think Anna Diarmas is, is a very welcome presence, and it's terrible that she has to leave so shortly. Uh, yeah, it's like a pretty easy pick for me. Do you have a different one? I I think that I would agree that that's the best sequence. I don't know that that's my favorite shot. I think my favorite shot either occurs on the the ship with Jeffrey Wright and Billy Magnuson, and that sequence as that ship begins to go underwater. Mm. There's a swimming sequence through fire. Um. Or it would be the explosion at the gravesite, and then the the chase scene that begins, mm. kind of ending, and the car just sitting in the middle of all these men getting shot, 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 mm. shot, shot over and over and it's over. A great scene. Um, it's it's a very um, cinematic piece of of storytelling, and it's like probably one of my favorite moments of James Bond ever. Mm-hmm. You know, it just so happens that it's in a movie that's completely devoid of meaning. this is true (laughs) well said Uh, that's no time to die we have to go I'm coming with you that was brilliant you're the best and we love you and that's another one in the can